If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In June 1907, five plucky teams departed Peking and embarked on a 9,317-mile automobile race all the way to Paris. Traversing scorching deserts and perilous mountain passes in ill-equipped vehicles, the participants regularly risked their lives. But their tenacity would transform attitudes towards the car forever. The author and historian Cassia St. Clair, who's written a brand new book on the race, recently spoke to John Borkham about this epic adventure and its enduring legacy today. Cassia, firstly, thanks for joining me on the History Extra podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the focus of this book is the Peking to Paris race of 1907, this hugely ambitious, dangerous automobile challenge spanning thousands of miles. To get us started, I just wondered whether you could uh, set the scene for us. Who came up with the idea for this contest and, and how did it get off the ground? Of course. So the idea originated somewhere in the bowels of the editorial department of a French newspaper called Le Matin. 
And at the very end of January 1907, they publish an article on their front page, essentially challenging the automotive industry and you know, drivers at the time to this incredible challenge, which they phrase as the most formidable challenge that the technology had thus far faced. Their position was that cars were not being respected and treated seriously by the rallies and competitions and various other automotive endeavours that were being set before it at that time. They said that, you know, these were just sort of slightly petty races run on circular tracks, on private land, only participated in by the super wealthy. And that this was kind of disrespecting the technology and what the technology was capable of. So instead, they proposed a journey across two continents and 8,000 miles from Peking to Paris. And they said that this would be a much truer test for the technology and would really show what cars were capable of. And they said, you know, the, the car is capable of going really, truly anywhere. And that's why we want to propose this journey. And so that's what they announced in their newspaper. And then, you know, almost immediately, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's totally unprecedented, isn't it? You know, I think in the book you say you might as well go to the moon via telegraph wire. Yeah, that was what a contemporary newspaper responded to this challenge. Because it's quite headline grabbing and attention grabbing, people do take notice of it, of this one single article, and they do sort of start responding to it. A Russian magazine completely dismisses it and says it's like, you know, tilting at, at windmills and it's just a stupid challenge and that, you know, maybe the Americans or the Russians might be up for it, but of course the French won't be able to. And then you get a Chinese newspaper basically comparing it to travelling underwater from Berlin to Rangoon or travelling to the moon via telegraph wire. You know, utterly impossible, utterly ridiculous. And just a kind of puerile publicity stunt and not something that could ever actually be achieved. So why are you even bothering to suggest it? That was that was how a lot of contemporaries viewed this challenge. And out of interest, just how widespread was the motor car by 1907? Was it still seen as something of a novelty in much of the world? It was. So automobiles, as with any new invention, you get a lot of different strands of technologies that come together until something is finally and fully invented. And there's always debate over what is the first example of any one thing. But the automobile really sort of comes together in the late 1880s and, and 1890s. So in 1907, it's still a relatively new technology. Most of the inventors, the principal inventors involved in most of the advances of the automobile into its sort of final stages are based in France and Germany. And so that's the, the heart of automotive industry at that time. They're also the countries that, particularly France, that have invested the most in their road infrastructure. Because if you think over the, you know, over the course of the 19th century, a lot of countries had been investing heavily in their railways. And, you know, for countries like Russia and China, railways had been the thing that people were focused on. And actually, roads were seen as quite old fashioned. And in fact, in Russia, a lot of them had actually fallen into disrepair. They would see it as old fashioned and old technology and not worth really bothering about because people have been focusing on railways. 
1907, the heart of the automobile industry is, is still in, in France and Western Europe, but you are beginning to see a shift. A lot of very wealthy Americans are very interested in driving, and they're still just about buying their cars from predominantly French manufacturers, but you are beginning to see very serious contenders in America. And really, the following year, Henry Ford will release the first Model T, and that's it. The sort of spiritual home of the car will then have shifted across the Atlantic and, it, you know, the automotive world will begin reflecting that kind of American influence a lot more than the Western European one. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Yeah, the center of gravity is really shifting to a, a new continent. So... We get to June 1907, and miraculously, five competitors turn up at the start line in Peking. There's one Italian vehicle, there is a Dutch spiker, there are three French vehicles, one of which is this cycle car. Who is the favourite to win at this point? So the first thing is that because roads have really been abandoned in Russia and most of the journey of the 8,000 miles, most of the miles are Russian miles and, you know, the roads there are, are not great. And then at the beginning of the race, when you're going through China and Mongolia, there are really very few roads at all, as we would think of them. You have tracks that are used for trading and are, and are predominantly used by sort of horses or mules and camels, that kind of thing. And so when you're thinking about planning that journey, it's it's really seen as kind of like a, a very much a cross country. The terrain's incredibly difficult. And so cars that you would back in Western Europe on good roads are not the cars you would bet on over this kind of terrain. And so you get different schools of thought, and that's reflected in the choice of vehicles that the five competitors turn up with. You've got the kind of middle of the road vehicles that are in many ways, I guess, the favourites. And those are two de Dion Boutons. De Dion Bouton is a very well-known French brand, Mark, and they've got really good pedigree. They've won plenty of races before and they are, you know, mid-range 
powerful in terms of their kind of engine power. And they're also kind of mid-sized. At one extreme, you have the Contal Motor Tri, which has got a tiny engine and is very, very light. And that's thought to be quite an advantage by some people, because literally if, if you get into trouble, if you reach bad terrain, if you reach a section of road that is very narrow, you can literally just lift this thing up bodily and move it across obstructions. And then at the other extreme, you've got the all Italian Itala car with patriotically Italian Pirelli tyres that is driven by a prince called Principioni Borghese. And this is the most powerful. While the, the Contal motor tri has got, you know, it's just six horsepower, the Didion Boutons have 10 horsepower, the Itala has 35, 40 horsepower. So it's far more powerful. It's also a lot heavier. And people are very concerned about this because yes, you know, on good roads, having more power is obviously great. But over desert land, over mud, that weight is really thought of as more of a disadvantage than advantage. So there are different schools of thought. But most people believe that kind of smaller, more nimble, lighter vehicles will be better over bad roads. Yeah. And then another key issue is fuel. What are they doing about that? At the time, fuel is still being sort of decided in the automotive industry. There are a lot of petrol powered cars and that's seen as a really good option. But when people of the time think about the future and what the future looks like, a lot of them think of electricity. And there are a lot of electric cars at the time and and there are people who really are still advocating for automobiles being electric powered. That's a, a big thing at the time. There are still also other people thinking about steam-powered cars, or there's a big push to develop cars powered by alcohol. So there's still a lot of debate in the industry about what will be the fuel that makes it. But all the cars that take part in this race are all reliant on petrol. So they have written in advance to fuel companies to try and get them to help them. And in order to, to do that, in order to make sure there is enough fuel for them all the way... They have taken sort of canisters of fuel, loaded them onto camels and mules and dropped them in sort of strategic locations, particularly in the first part of the route between Peking and Lake Baikal. So sort of through China and into Mongolia and, and just going into Russia, that stretch is basically provided for by fuel taken on camels and, and mules. And then from Lake Baikal, they can then be more reliant on the railway system and fuel is, is sort of dropped in caches by rail. Sure. And one thing I find really significant about this story and about your book is, as you say, there's the story of technological progress in terms of automobiles. There's also another story here about mass communication and the advent of the telegraph. I mean, the telegraph wasn't quite new, but there were interesting developments happening. What role does that play in this story? So I think that's the really interesting thing about this race, because of course, it's a story about the car, but it's also a story about communication. Le Matin, the newspaper that came up with the idea in the first place, they wanted to ensure that they had a steady stream of copy that they could publish each day to ensure that their readers can follow along. You know, the whole point of this really is to help sell newspapers. That's to make a really exciting, formidable challenge to get people to do it and then to 
embed journalists with the drivers who can then go to telegraph stations, send back reports, so readers can follow along with the journeys of these individuals. And that's really, you know, a huge part of the whole affair. So they send out, you know, various journalists, some of them are fairly well known, including the correspondent from the Corriere della Sera, who is writing for this, you know, big Italian newspaper, but is also sending his reports back to the Daily Telegraph as often as possible. Sometimes it's daily, you know, there can be little reports sent, you know, twice daily when the Telegraph stations allow it. And this is meant to sort of really hook in readers. And it's a real testament to the Telegraph that this race happens at all and happens in the way that it does. And in fact, the route, there are lots of different ways of getting from Peking to Paris, but the route that they choose, which is quite a northerly one and takes them really all the way through Russia, that route is actually chosen because there's the most coverage by telegraph wires and and stations all the way along. So they can really ensure nearly continuous coverage of the journey. Indeed. And do the teams encounter any difficulties at these telegraph stations? You know, the language barrier, for instance. All sorts of difficulties. So they think of themselves as being pioneers of and sort of helping to spread modernity and a lot of these kind of tropes that you would imagine that Western explorers and adventurers at this time they really sort of feel that they embody the kind of the ideal of modernity and and progress. And they're delighted and really sort of make a big deal of some of the odder things that happen at telegraph stations, because these are kind of almost like nodes of modernity. That's sort of how they're, they're seen. So, for example, at one of the very first telegraph stations they come to, they report that it's the first time any telegraph has actually been sent from this telegraph station. It's been used as a relay, so messages have sort of passed through it, but no one has actually gone to that telegraph station before to send a message. I mean, it's not that surprising. It's kind of in the middle of the Gobi Desert. But, you know, there are telegraph papers that they use and they're kind of numbered and they use the paper that says 000001 on it. So that's a big deal for them. They come to another one and the telegraph operators, they say are sort of in an opium induced haze and cannot operate the machinery and so they try for a bit but they just can't get through to the operators and so they have to give up and and go away. In Russia there's a lot of political tension. It's not that long after the Russo-Japanese war and so there's a lot of fear of spying and you've also just had the 1905 first Russian revolution and so There's a lot of suspicion around foreigners kind of rocking up in in telegraph stations. And so sometimes they're just refused use of the telegraph system because the telegraph operators can't read their messages and so they can't be censored. And what are the attitudes of the competitors towards the locals that they meet along the way? And what sort of hospitality do they receive? So it really depends on where they are and it depends on their mood. I mean, as you can imagine, it's a very difficult journey. The weather conditions are dreadful. The road conditions are dreadful. And for quite a lot of the route, particularly the sort of French competitors as they start falling behind, they're really grumpy and angry and frustrated and annoyed. And they're just not a delight to be around to anyone, no matter how hospitable and no matter whether they view them as equals or not. But the fact is, is that most of the people they encounter, particularly, you know, in the East, sort of before they enter Western Europe, they really don't regard them as equals at all. And they really look down on them and they're surprised when people seem intelligent and when they have interactions 
that suddenly make them realise that they are dealing with equals, that's quite jarring for them. And there are quite a few of those along the way. So, for example, in the middle of Mongolia, they encounter a young man who speaks absolutely perfect German because a few years earlier, he'd been asked to participate in a great exhibition in Germany. And he'd been one of the exhibits. There'd been sort of an exhibit of various like tribes people from around the world. And he'd been sort of part of a kind of Mongolian setup. And because he'd been interacting with visitors to the exhibition, he'd learned perfect German. And there he is back in his home and, and they're just amazed that he can speak German. Elsewhere, when they're in Siberia, the Italian prince runs into technical difficulties. One of the wheels on his vehicle completely shatters and he goes to a local telega maker who is basically a maker of traditional Russian carts and carriages and one of the apprentices speaks perfect Latin and he's been teaching himself Latin during the winter nights and again they're just you know flabbergasted and they receive an awful lot of kindness lots of people go out of their way to ensure that they get to their fuel supplies or get to their hotel you know people return luggage to them you know people who just go out of their way to help them and this does sort of start shifting the way they think but you know fundamentally they are who they are and they carry the prejudices of the era with them and they never quite break through. And you mentioned earlier that this whole ordeal makes people very grumpy which is not really surprising. Was there much camaraderie between the various teams or was it a bit of a selfish endeavour after a few days into the journey? So part of the problem with the setup is it, it all happens quite quickly. So the whole idea is announced at the very end of January 1907. The race is due to start in June. That's a fairly long time. But if you think about the fact that the cars have got to be shipped to China, actually, you're only looking at a matter of weeks. And that really compresses the time in which they have to, to organise the race and to think about how it's going to work in practice, which means that actually a lot of the foundational agreements about what this event is going to look like and what it's going to be aren't really put in place. So some competitors think that they're meant to be staying together all the way until Berlin. That's announced in one newspaper article. In another newspaper article, you know, it says there are no rules. You just set off and do your own thing. So when they arrive in Beijing, understandably, they don't really have a shared idea of what they're meant to be doing. And as a result, almost immediately, it's pretty much a free-for-all and it's every man, and it is all men, it's every man for himself, basically. And you also get interpersonal issues. You know, they're quite different people. Like I said, you've got an Italian prince. You've also got, you know, a French man who basically turns out to be a con man. You've got some middle-class, quite scrappy racers involved as well. So you've got very different personality types. You've got people from very different class backgrounds. And then you've also got this kind of interplay of, of national rivalries playing out as well. And so what should have been and what was kind of often billed as a kind of cohesive mission to kind of showcase Western modernity, and that's meant to be quite cohesive, really falls apart almost on first contact with the road. And thereafter, it's a free for all. And when do we get the first casualty of the race? Within hours. I mean, not casualty as in death, but the first person to drop out drops out within hours. This is really difficult. It's still difficult today. Actually, my husband and I wanted to do it and we bought an old Toyota Land Cruiser and I was really intimidated by the planning and the expense and the logistics and all the rest of it. But to do this in 1907 was tremendously difficult, particularly when you think how young the technology of the car was and the difficulties they would be facing. 
So unsurprisingly, there's real issues from very early on. And in lots of places, the cars simply are unable to drive and have to be dragged. They're fording rivers, they're crossing fields that are kind of just completely muddy and they can barely move. They're going through bogs and, and all the rest of it. It's really difficult conditions and it's not what the car of that era is set up to do at all. And eventually the Italians end up taking this huge lead. Is that when the race really starts to capture the public's imagination, when they realise, actually, someone's going to be able to do this? Well, so from the very first announcement of the idea, you see a kind of flurry of interest really globally that someone's proposing this, but most people kind of write it off as a publicity stunt that will never actually happen. It's when the cars start crossing the traditional border from east to west in Siberia that you really begin to see people thinking, hang on a second, you know, if not all the cars, then definitely some of these cars are going to make it. And you start really seeing a kind of groundswell of popular support and global interest. And you start seeing, the competitors start seeing as they turn up in cities, that crowds are coming out to greet them, which is very sort of disconcerting and a bit odd for them because they're they're spending days and days in the middle of nowhere and then suddenly getting to a big city and, you know, they're covered in mud and look absolutely filthy and haven't been able to wash for, for a couple of weeks. And then they're being greeted by crowds and kind of guards and honour and all the rest of it. So it's very disconcerting for them. But yes, there is this interest. And there's also a bit of a problem because it's the prince, as you say, who takes this massive lead. And this is not what the Le Matin, the French newspaper, had in mind at all. In fact, if anything, they thought that this would be a way of kind of really making sure that the French automotive industry was kind of given its due and would have this triumphal entry into Paris at the end and all the rest of it. And then suddenly, actually, the French cars are lagging behind and it's an Italian car at the front and this does not make them happy at all. So you've already got a bit of, you know, hurt national pride. A lot of American car manufacturers are beginning to sort of rival the French ones. And so this does not make them happy at all. And it also, they begin to sort of realise that they're losing control of the narrative. And so you get this attempt halfway through for Le Matin to kind of say, this was never meant to be a race. This was just a demonstration of the vehicle, of the capacity of the vehicle. And obviously the most powerful vehicle would, of course, always you know have this huge advantage. And that's really not what they were saying at the start. So you get this real attempt to manage and massage the message from about halfway through. Because, spoiler alert, Borghese ends up winning and he enters Paris to this huge crowd. What sort of reception does he receive? I mean, it's really quite astonishing. If you look at photographs, you can see just crowds of people, huge crowds. Initially, it's a ticketed event and they sell out all the tickets. And so they end up kind of having to change arrangements so that people who weren't able to get their hands on tickets will still be able to see the prince arrive. There's huge dinner parties. There's a, a screening with all this sort of cutting edge new technology. There's a brilliant speech that is sort of given by various dignitaries in France. And then they hold up a telephone to a gramophone and have someone calling in from another country. And this is sort of seen as just mind-blowingly modern and exciting at the time. So it's massive. You know, there are songs written in Borghese's honour and then you get the kind of Borghese bomb dessert being created in his honour with Barzini wafers after the Italian journalist who's riding in the car with him. You know, it's a huge big deal. And also from the newspaper's point of view, even if it hadn't been a French victory, it's still a tremendous coup for them because 
their name is being mentioned very innovative. Lots of people are suddenly aware of Le Matin, they're selling more copies and, you know, they want to capitalise on the success and think about what they can do to recapture this magic and, and maybe do an encore. Yeah. And is there an encore? There is actually, you know, just a few months later, they propose, along with the New York Times, they propose a kind of even more ambitious race. This time it'll be from New York to Paris, going the wrong way around, as it were, sort of going all across America, up into Alaska. They're going to do it in winter, so they'll be able to cross the Bering Straits over the ice, and then going all the way through Russia and westwards to Paris. So that's proposed, you know, for very early in 1908. Was there an overall sense as well then, Cassia, that the world had got smaller, like the introduction of the telegraph perhaps had made people feel decades before? So with each new technology, you find people bemoaning the fact that it's sort of taking away the romance of travel. One of the ways in which I researched this story was to look at other travellers' accounts who'd been this way or, or had travelled through this landscape. And there's this brilliant account, I've forgotten the name of the author, of course, but it's written in the 1860s. And this man travels by steamer. And he he's on this boat, sort of talking about, you know, porpoises and the waves and, you know, seeing a whale and birds and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, oh, you know, travel's just got so boring now that you can just do it so fast, which I found really enjoyable. But yes, every time there is an advance in technology, people worry about the fact that it's removing the romance of travel, it's making the world too small, it's taking away the mystery or the exoticism or insert whatever adjective there of, you know, these far off distant places. So you get that every single time there's a new invention of this kind. And you talked a little bit about your research process there, and part of that took place during lockdown. Did you find that any of the traditional accounts had been misleading or that people had embellished or lied? I mean, inevitably, you've got, you know, five different vehicles carrying multiple different people who really didn't get on from the get-go and who were representing various commercial and national interests. And so, of course there is a fair amount of disagreement and you get kind of a lot of managing. And what I found so fascinating is that a lot of the competitors later wrote books and those are actually what I started with. And I would then go back and look at the accounts that they wrote as they went along. And I assumed essentially that those would be a repeat of the books that I'd read. But actually it's really fascinating to see what makes it in and what is taken out and how they kind of smooth the narrative and shape things and that really gives a lot away in terms of how they were feeling about their fellows and how the organisers wanted the story to go as well. But of course, because they, from very early on, you get these five vehicles kind of scattered all over the landscape and there aren't enough journalists to cover all of the action. And so you get kind of random pockets of, of silence and you end up with kind of a competitor who's just dropped off the map for weeks on end. And then suddenly reappears again and you don't really know what's happened to them. And so piecing that together was really good fun and really led to some kind of new elements in the story that are very much not the story that's been told over the previous few decades. I was able to kind of move that forward and to, to show that, that actually the way the heroes and villains of the story have traditionally been thought about, it, it's actually not the case. And that was really fun. And finally, Cassia, over 116 years later, how should the Peking to Paris race be remembered today? I think firstly, I really want to make sure that it is remembered. I was really shocked when I sort of found it myself, how much had been 
forgotten and how much this race that really captured the global imagination in 1907 had kind of dropped off the radar for most people. So firstly, I think it's important that it is remembered. I also think it's a fantastic way of looking at this period, which is such an incredible one. You're just a few years before the First World War. As they pass through Russia, they're in this very turbulent time just after the the First Russian Revolution. And although we kind of think about the First Russian Revolution as happening in 1905, and then that being it basically until 1917, you know, when you look at not only the driver's accounts of Russia in that time, but also kind of diplomatic cables and letters and so on and so forth, it's still really dangerous. There's a lot of upheaval, you know, a lot of political prisoners, all this kind of thing. And also in China, you're going through this massive period of change. It's not that long after the Boxer Rebellion. And again, soon you're about to have another dynasty fall. So not only should the journey itself be remembered, but it was just a really fantastic way to look into a very turbulent time and this kind of sense of a world on a cusp of profound change, a world becoming the world that we recognise today. Cassia St. Clair, thanks very much for your time. It's been really great chatting. Thank you so much for having me. That was Cassia St. Clair. Her new book, The Race to the Future, The Adventure That Accelerated the 20th Century, is published by John Murray. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.